Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. On this week's podcast, Eric Tease joins us from Lake Balboa, California, where he runs the custom integration company DSI Luxury Technology. DSI, for the past 20 years, has built a reputation for creating amazing screening rooms in Beverly Hills, Malibu, and the general Los Angeles area, oftentimes for famous filmmakers in the so-called Bel Air circuit. But that's just one of many areas that, of specialization for this Home Technology Association certified ASEAN Unlimited member company. For instance, as I learned just recently, DSI was awarded with a Health and Wellness Project of the Year Award at CES 2022 in Las Vegas. Eric and I often cross paths at ASEAN Unlimited meetings, where one year he gave one of the most entertaining and probably inappropriate uh, TED Talks that you'll ever experience. The talk that I had the misfortune of being assigned was on blockchain. Let's just say Eric's subject matter was a lot more entertaining than mine. On that cryptic note, Eric Tease, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeremy. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Now, it would be cruel to just leave it dangling there about what your topic was at uh, ASEAN, but I thought that it might be, well, kind of cruel to make you tell it without being too too, uh, graphic, but... uh, can you just rem- remind me what the assignment was for that before we get into how you uh, actually handled the TED Talk? Well, I think, if I recall, it was a few years ago, but if I recall, I, I remember all of the comedy. I don't particularly remember the meaning of the... <laughs> you just uh, ignored the assignment. <laughs> the assignment. The assignment was basically talking about um, you know, profit margins and what uh, what you know, CI dealers should pay themselves and how they should structure okay. their business. And, and kind of the one big lesson was like, you know, if you are really just kind of making your market salary in your company, you don't have a business, you have a job. You just happen to surround yourself with all sorts of people. And so, so really, you, you know, you got to treat your business like a business. Most of our, most CI dealers don't treat their business like a business. They treat it like, a, a, you know, a lifestyle, lifestyle job. Um, and they're not really concerned about making profit outside of what they pay themselves as a, as a market salary. So that was the kind of the point I wanted to hammer home. Like, you know, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. You got to treat it like a business. Uh, that was, no, that's a really, that's really a wise, mature sort of perspective, but that's not anything that I remember at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, you don't remember any of that. You remember of, you know, me superimposing Jimmy Paschke next to like a, two girls and a cup logo. That's the kind of stuff that you remember. Like all of the, you know, basically, also, basically what I did was I, you know, I just wanted to make fun of all the ASEAN board members I was, I was up there with and, um, you know, it superimposed their pictures in, in embarrassing ways. And that was, that was, <laughs> well, I, I, I was still recovering from my, uh, my very short, we had, I think we had like 15 or 20 minutes we were supposed to present and I had been assigned blockchain, and Richard uh, Glags had, had had asked me to cover this topic, and I was in between magazine jobs at the time. He was going to pay me to come there, and I said, "Well, I can't turn down a, a gig. You know, I'm not sure I'm going to have a job at that point." Well, I got a job, so I didn't get paid for it, and I still had to re- talk about blockchain, which I had no business talking about. 
not an easy thing to discuss. So I was still recovering from that presentation, which ran about 10 minutes short because I just kind of covered all I knew and then was done. And then you come up there and they give it, they literally give a disclaimer. We're not responsible for this content. Just based on the, on the uh, graphics. Right. And yeah. I, I learned a lot more about Pornhub than I ever, than, than I ever knew. And I yeah. also, uh, had to Google a lot of things that are probably still haunting me to this day as far as my <laughs> Google history. Uh, so we'll leave it at that. It was entertaining and I, I really, I appreciated it. I'm glad um, you enjoyed it. it. I'm glad you it light. Yeah. It very much lightened my day after my, my fiasco. So Sometimes, let's get you know, into You got to live enough those buying group meetings every once in a while. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let, let's get into your career a little bit. Um, yeah. I definitely want to talk about the Bel Air circuit and, and your client base and, and what technology, um, you've kind of gotten your hands on and enjoyed working with, but, uh, you started, um, I was surprised to see that you're a Penn state grad, so you're yep. not from the West coast. Um, mm -hmm. but I did also notice that you're a film and communications major and yep. that might've brought you to the West coast. Uh, certainly. Yeah, certainly. Uh, I started out at Penn state with the, you know, from 10 years old and on, I was convinced I wanted to be George Lucas. And so that's the path I took in high school and made films in high school and then went on to college and did a bunch of filmmaking. And uh, then, uh, you know, my, my high school sweetheart dragged me for, to Chicago for three and a half years. We lived there for quite some time under the agreement that we would then move to L.A. where I would start my film career. Mm -hmm. And then so I came out to L.A. and I was making films. I was writing um, screenplays. And at the same time, I was working retail. I was working for a company called Good Guys, which you know West Coasters might remember, because previously I had worked at Highland Superstores um, in Chicago when I lived there. So two two now defunct retailers. Um, and and I was also a musician. I played drums and played in bands. And so you know, always had a love of music. Always had a love of movies. Um, and then kind of had to be somewhat technical to make movies to make music right so mm -hmm. i sort of understood the technology and just found myself as hey i need to pay the rent so i'm gonna get a job selling electronics which was which i did in chicago which was fun then i continued out here and then um 1994 happened that was the dawn of uh, direct tv and so i said wow there's a business to be had here um i don't know what it is i was trying to figure it out because Cable at that time was terrible, right? Picture was terrible, service was terrible, interruptions all the time. It was a really bad service compared to what it is today. And I knew satellite was going to take off, and it did. DirecTV was um, super successful. Um, and I said, well, you know, I need to sort of hitch my wagon to this technology because one, I think it's exciting, and two, I think it's going to be really successful. And so that's how DSI started. It started as a installation support arm for all of these retailers in Los Angeles don't exist anymore. Adrays, Electronics, mm -hmm. Kane Cranes, The Good Guys, Circuit City, et cetera. So we, you know, we worked with all of these retailers to do the installation of satellite dishes. And of course, you know, when you're in the home, the client wants backyard speakers and this and that. And so it just evolved into a bigger business um, and more new construction and bigger projects. And, and uh, you know, we, we, we quickly sort of pivoted out of satellite install and small install and retail support and that and uh so and and that's sort of where we are today is servicing high-end residences big 
big kind of hairy, technically challenging projects. That's what we do do now. So that that's that was the genesis of of me and how I kind of got here now. But the the funny story about it is is the reason I thought the business reason I decided installation was the way to go is because you know I'm from the East Coast where people do things for themselves. They actually wash their cars and mow their lawns and things like that. But when I came to California, I realized nobody does that. They don't wash their cars. They don't clean their pools. They don't mow their lawns. They don't even raise their children to some extent. So, you know, uh, I, I, I knew that the, the California client was not going to jump on a roof with a $69 install kit and, and hang their own satellite dish. And that was the original model of DirecTV. It wasn't, there was no professional installation offered. Jump on your roof, put your satellite on. I, I knew that was just not going to happen in Southern California, at least. And I, and I was right. There was a business there. So, um, but back to why I didn't get into film. So I was writing screenplays and we, we got, you know, we got a producer, a very famous producer attached to a screenplay that we were going to sell. I started missing meetings because I had this business I was running. Um, and, you know, the producer looked at me and goes, Eric, what do you want to do? You want to, you want to be a business owner? Or you want to be in the movie business? And, and, you know, it was kind of a crossroads for me. And I was like, wow, you know, that's a really interesting thing because I'm having a lot of fun running this business. It's, it's interesting to me. I'm a bit ADD, which lends itself to being an entrepreneur. And, um, and it was fun where the isolation of like sitting in a room and writing a movie and putting all of my destiny in the hands of people and I could make it and might not make it. And the idea of starving for art wasn't particularly appealing to me. So at that point, I just said, yeah, no, I'm done. You know, if you sell the script, great, but I'm going to run with this business thing. And that was about 1996 or 97. So anyway, that's how I decided to get out of film and, 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 and keep running with this CI business. You know? I, I too dabbled with the idea of filmmaking and, uh, and I, I interned for, for a uncle who was actually a, a director in Hollywood doing commercials. He never made it to feature films, but um, my, my experience being on a set just sort of made me realize this is not filmmaking is not what I thought it was. It's right. like watching the paint dry. Um, unless you're the creative in the middle of it all and that takes yeah. some time to get there, you know, and you have to do all these little independent projects and be passionate about it and really have ideas. I think I lacked ideas too. That was kind of my problem, but, mm. <laughs> um, it, it, it that, that's a unique story though, from, uh, what I hear typically for CI uh, owners, owners going into this business. So although the retail, that's a familiar thread there. Yeah. Uh, so what were some of the early, uh, I guess, successes that kind of helped to catapult you then from that um, more humble start where you're doing rooftop installations to getting to these really luxury projects? Because that, that must have taken some time to get to that level, right? What did you have to do along the way to get the, the client base that you have now? Well, one, we had just had to get better, right? You know, uh, we had to we had to figure out things we didn't know. We could hang satellite dishes and install speakers and set up, you know, distributed audio system. But in the '90s, home automation was the wild west. You know, Crestron existed at that time, but it wasn't like it is now. It wasn't a polished, you know, nicely packaged, easy to install thing. It was it was truly custom and and challenging to do. Um, so one, we just had to kind of get our skills together and two, it, you know, it was a, a bit of an evolution of, of like just working with the right 
building partners, architects, and, and letting them know who we are. It was a gradual process. Um, I would say, you know, a turning point for us was when we, there's a, there's a particular uh, gated community in, in Los Angeles that, you know, lots of famous people live in, like Sylvester Stallone and Rod Stewart and Denzel Washington. And it's sort of like the holy grail of, of gated communities in terms of projects. And, you know, we'd landed a really, really big one with a really prominent architect. And that was, that was something that, kind of put us on the map as the as the young kids or the new kids in town, you know, versus all the guys that have been doing it for a lot longer that were older than me. So now I'm the old guy. And uh <laughs> but 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 then I was the young kid and uh and that was a that was a pretty substantial project which got got us a lot of attention and got us a lot of other projects. But you know, okay. more of a natural evolution than than a than a lot of big, big moments that changed the course of the company. Sure. Yeah. And, and as we know, referrals are what it's all about in this business. So once you have that relationship, whether it's with the architect or the actual uh, high net worth client and they tell their friends or they tell or, you know, have you on the next project as if it's the architect that that sort of leads to what you become, I guess, there as long as you don't mess it up too much along the way. Right. You're only as good as your last project in our business. That's the that's the constant yep. challenging part. So, uh little i guess later on you were involved in the 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 famous um via merger which was 2013 um Are and you I, I know to that up my ptsd yeah. <laughs> I, I try not to bring this up too often to folks involved and i know no, we it, can talk about that. Talk. but i i think it was a it was a pretty pivotal point and we've had these uh attempts at mergers or uh roll-ups or whatever you want to call them uh throughout the industry a little bit uh, and this one was one that sounded good on paper and I just wondered if you could talk about initially you did eventually become the director of marketing for the group which um, I'll describe it as uh, um, as we did in the article when I interviewed Randy Stearns back at the time that it was uh, six home technology firms in the western U.S. that joined together um, the focus on a full service digital concierge level service to hundreds of ultra high net worth clients across the country. And the idea, of course, was to combine your resources and do things in a more efficient, better way. And uh, I'm assuming that's what appealed to you about going in on this merger. Um, is that what grabbed your attention? Did yeah, you that, ever worry sure. that you're going to give up some of your uh, independence there? Or any issues that you're concerned about going in? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you all the things that I found appealing about it. One was kind of building this mousetrap that's never been built. It's pretty exciting. Two, working with a lot of guys that I really respected and 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 you know got along with. That was an exciting thing too. I mean, from a timing standpoint, the genesis of this idea was around 2012, right? So this was right on the the end of the the, the recession of 2008, which most CI companies didn't really feel until 2009 or 10 because we had a bunch of projects in the pipeline. But when we when it hit, we felt it. And so it was challenging to get through that time. And, you know, all of a sudden you struggle, struggle, struggle. Now in 2012, we were kind of back on our feet. But, oh boy, it kind of took a lot of wind out of the sails, you know, going through that and having to, you know, shrink your workforce and, and expand your workforce and just, you know, all the stress of cash flow during those periods of time, it was stressful. 
So when someone comes along and goes, hey, let's all get together, we could potentially have a big exit event. It's going to be really hard to sell your company on your own. You're just too small, right? Then people aren't interested in it. But this is something that private equity or VC people might be interested in. Oh, and by the way, you're not the guy that has to worry about making payrolls and doing all this sort of administrative stuff. You can do the things you really like in the company, whatever that is. You know, in my case, sales and marketing was always the fun thing for me. So, so the time was right for me personally to like say, okay, I can kind of relieve myself of the daily operations of a company, which I wasn't, you know, but still yet run, you know, my little part of the world here, which is Southern California. Um, and work with a bunch of smart people and do something that hasn't been done before. So in, at the front end, it was all very exciting and fresh and new and, and sounded amazing. Um, you know, the execution obviously wasn't there, right? The, the, and, and it didn't succeed for a bunch of reasons. And everyone thinks that they know the reason why, but it, to me, it was kind of like a plane crash. You know, the, a plane crash is never one thing, right? A plane crash is a series of events that happen that cause the plane to crash. And, and that's sort of what the what the via thing was, but um, there's a lot of elements. Well, so so what did you? I guess how did you survive it and reform as an independent um, company back to where you were? I guess before um, that didn't always that didn't happen for I don't think all of the participants um, or at least the individuals involved. Maybe maybe the company stayed, but the owner didn't, or something like that. Uh, do you recall how many? What, what the results were here for the companies just kind of reforming back into their original. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so kind of going down the line, there was a, there was a division in Texas that never came back. San Francisco never came back. Randy had left yeah. Vienna and uh, to, to start working at D tools. So right. he didn't have an interest in, in spinning it back up. Um, uh, Arizona spun back up as the cyber group. Paragon spun back up and SAV spun back up and us. So there was four of the, we'll call it seven, um, seven original right. areas. Uh, okay. That, that started. So was it, was it, was it hard to ramp back up after VIA or had, had you can continue the relationships enough with your clients where you were able to do it without much trouble? You know, I was in the marketplace for a long time before VIA happened. So, so, there were a lot of long-standing relationships that were able to keep. Um, you know, some of the challenges, like just you know, what, what was amazing to me is that we probably, I think it was maybe three and a half weeks from the point where Via said we got to shut our doors to the point that we were able to jump back in and start servicing clients. So it wasn't a big spread mm-hmm. of time yet. As soon as VIA closed their doors and the clients thought there was any chance of them not getting service, they immediately, you know, a lot of them immediately just started finding alternatives, right? Because oh, um, okay. they didn't want to be stuck um, without yeah. without a provider. So, you know, not all the projects stayed. Um, a lot of them did, but a lot of them didn't. Um, and it was amazing to me because, you know, we were held bent on sort of getting all the clients whole from a, from a money perspective um, that might have had deposits out there. And then, you know, really surprising to me is like, you know, okay, so I lost $200,000. It's okay. I just want to know I've got somebody, which is shocking to me, right? I was like, we'll be up in a few weeks. Uh, (laughs) Trust me, trust me, I'm I'm a survivor. This is going to happen. 
And they're like, nah, whatever. It's only 200,000. I'm like, okay. So, um, but yeah, no, it was a struggle sort of getting back, you know, getting back the trust of everybody that we weren't going to one go out of business again, or um, that we had the resources to finish their projects or whatever. But uh, yeah, you know, here we are six years away from that. And it seems like it was decades ago. Um, and, yeah. and, and we're exactly where we want to be. So, and, you know, and here I'm bringing it up. Yeah. Well, what, what did you learn? Um, what could you apply like as a lesson to your current company from that experience? Was there anything that you picked up from working with those other companies that helps you to be a better company and sort of solve some of the trouble challenges that you had that kind of convinced you that you needed to do the merger? Um, um, well, I, I think a lesson, a big lesson that we all should take away from or that we can all take away or that we all, eh, let me see how I can phrase this. Our biggest problem in this industry, or even as a small business owner is our own limiting beliefs of what our company could be or what our capabilities are. And so when I was that tight with, with other business owners and saw how their businesses was run, you, those limiting beliefs get shattered, right? Cause you say, well, I can't sell, you know, alarm systems. That's impossible. Right. But yet, Oh, this group in Arizona is doing a fantastic job and they have all this recurring revenue and they're making it work in their custom installation model. And that's just a stupid example. But there's a lot of things like that that you're seeing other people be successful at that you couldn't believe, you know, you didn't believe was possible. And so, you know, there's a lot of ego in our business. People think they've figured it all out. You know, you never stop learning in our business. Um, you never stop learning as a business owner. So I would, I would encourage all business owners to challenge the limiting beliefs and, uh, you know, whatever they think is not possible, I guarantee you there's some integrator somewhere in the country that's killing it and doing it. Right. So I think that, I think that was, you know, if we had to sort of boil it down to one takeaway, being in those other businesses and seeing what's possible was really kind of eye opening. Yeah. And then also another, another thing is like, you know, uh, as a business owner, you often feel like you're the you're the smartest guy in the room. Whether that's true or not, that's what you believe, and often you're not. So you need to recognize that. So being in a group of other smart people was a bit humbling. Go, okay, well, I probably don't have all the other answers, and my employees have been telling me to do things differently or this one way. They were probably right, you know. So um, that's another thing I learned. Well, we will continue our conversation with Eric Tees after the short break. Founded in 2005 by a team of highly skilled audio veterans, Wet Sounds is an award-winning Texas-based marine audio company bringing a level of performance, style, and durability unparalleled in the audio industry. Wet Sounds is proud to introduce you to the Venue Series 110-volt, 1200-watt, four-channel amplifier system. The VS-1200 amplifier was specifically designed to power Venue Series products while utilizing a 110-volt power source. Included is the VS-LS-ENC, a purpose-built landscape enclosure designed to house the Wet Sounds VS-1200 amp with a plug-and-play media center in harsh outdoor environments. Learn more, visit wetsounds.com. Welcome back. I'm talking with DSI's Eric Tees. Uh, Eric, you were uh, just kind of wrapping up talking about the the VIA um, merger. And I guess that one big piece is that exit strategy. And uh, that I, I'd forgotten that 
that merger happened on the heels of the recession. And that makes total sense why everyone would sort of say, like, I need to take some of the pressure off my shoulders here, the weight off my shoulders. And that idea of getting an exit strategy of being able to sort of sell the company when you're ready to retire is still a major challenge for this industry. Um, is there any wisdom that you gleaned from this experience or is, is that still just a thing out there that's sort of just not solved yet for you as far as how this happens? You just have to get that, that young guy in your company, uh, in the, you know, lined up later on or something like that. How's it going to work out for you there? You think? Well, um, I, I personally don't think a lot about extra strategy right now, just cause I'm really enjoying what I'm doing and I, I don't see myself. Yeah. I don't have a desire to sit on a beach and do nothing. So, um, and this is what I know how to do. So I, I plan on doing this for a while, but, um, but as I look at the marketplace, there's a lot more opportunities for exits than there used to be. Um, and whether that be another company that's growing, you know, in a big way um, that, that wants to absorb you. Um, mm. yeah, but there's a lot of investors interested in our space. So I think there's a lot, there are opportunities. Um, the challenge that a CI owner needs to overcome is to separate themselves from the business. In other words, there's a lot of CI businesses, which are called bicycle businesses, meaning that you got an owner and as soon as he stops pedaling, that business falls over and you got nothing, right? So you, you have to figure a way to make your business survive without you. Um, then you have something that can sell. And, and, and sort of back to what we started talking about is the business has to turn a profit. In other words, uh, an investor is going to come look at your company and, you know, say you're a $5 million company and you're paying yourself whatever. We're just going to say $300,000 a year, right? Um, so if you're paying yourself that money and there's no extra money to uh, replace you, or if there's no profit in the business for the for the for the investor to take out of the company, there's not really much interest in that company. So one, the business got to be profitable. Two, the business needs to run in some capacity without you if you mm -hmm. want an exit. Um, the other, only other way is to yeah find that guy in your company that wants to take over the reins and work out some deal with him. The problem there is those people don't have capital typically. Right. So they're not going to write you a check for a million bucks or two million bucks or whatever it is. Um, so, but, but there is hope. There's a lot more buyers than there were 10 years ago, for sure. So if you're running your business clean and you're making a profit and it can somewhat survive without you, you got a shot at selling your business for a pretty decent multiple. Well, I think one of the things I teased in my intro, which I haven't touched on is the, this Bel Air circuit that, that you're a part of, and you, you talk about it on your website and, uh, I guess the original early days of it, um, I think I uh, I learned about it when there was still a lot of film projectors in, in these homes of Hollywood directors where they were literally bringing in reels to watch dailies or watch, you know, private collections or something, I guess, of films. Um, now, of course, it's it's everything's moved to, to digital and video. Um, but is this still a very active part of your client base? Um, are you still kind of servicing the Hollywood community in your uh, yeah. projects? Yeah, hundred percent. So, um, and to educate people on what the Bel Air circuit is, Bel Air circuit really is kind of a loose name for the people that are kind of in and at a high enough position in the entertainment industry where they can have access to call up the head of a studio and say, put me on the list of people that are allowed to get your films the day they're released. And it used to be just strictly entertainment business. So you'd see top producers, actors, directors. 
have these systems in their home where they can watch, you know, James Bond the day it comes out in the theaters. Um, that has spread a little bit to other people in business just because that the, uh, the, the world of Hollywood is not so insular, you know, as it used to be, right? We have, we have a lot of tech people in Hollywood now. We have a lot of private equity in Hollywood. So you see people in the Beller circuit that really have nothing to do with the entertainment industry. They just happen to be influential and rich, right? So, right. Um, so anyway, there's a group, and, and I don't know how many people are in it. Maybe it's 1,000, maybe it's 2,000 um, households where they're going to install professional-grade cinema equipment, same sort of projectors that you would find you know, at an AMC in their home um, with Dolby processors, and um, they're installing a complete professional cinema rig in their home so they can watch James Bond the day it's released in theaters and not have to go to a regular theater with the unwashed masses. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so that, so that it is, it is still a big part of business. It's, it's shifting a bit. The, the, the desire for that is waning just a little bit because so much stuff is instantly available on streaming, you know, big movies, Dune, you know, you can watch it on HBO, you know, King Richard on, you can watch it on HBO or Max, you didn't have, you don't have to get these systems to do that, but there's still a bunch of Hollywood releases that they aren't there. They are holding back and are in theaters only. And uh, our clients want to have access to everything if they can. So um, it's a, it's a, it's fun because, you know, one, you're dealing with a client base that really cares about movies. It's a big deal to them. They use these rooms quite a bit. Um, and uh, they care about quality, so you know it's kind of ideal, ideal client. It's really fun to to build theaters for the people that make the movies. Yeah. So, are you installing the, those uh, commercial grade uh, setups as well as what you would do for your um, your typical high end clients that aren't Bel, Bel Air Circuit people, or is yeah. it uh, someone else? Okay. So, you're you are you certified or something to be able to do that type of a? Yeah. So yeah. you know. A while ago, it was a little more difficult to get these projectors because they were, you, you know, you kind of had to hire a professional cinema company, the same kind of people that service the AMCs to come out and, and supply your projector and install it. But now you've got Barco in our space, which, you know, besides their residential projector, projectors, they offer a great selection of what they call consumer DCI projectors, meaning that it's meant for our channel. So, um, you know, if you're an integrator in the middle of Iowa and all, you know, you just happen to have a movie star that has a house there and wants DCI, well, you can lean on Barco to help you with that projector installation. There's a lot of great, you know, acoustic design services and theater design services out there that you can use to help you build this, build a theater like that. Besides Barco, um, I remember you saying Kaleidoscape's a bit, you're a Kaleidoscape dealer. You're still like, um, mm -hmm. that is a solution when you're not, getting direct from the studio uh, movies for your clients. Yeah. Seems like a good fit. Absolutely. I mean, uh, to me, I think any kind of performance theater should have a Kaleidoscape. And, and even if you're not using it, even if you don't have a movie collector client, um, you should be using it as the best rental machine that exists. Right. So, um, you know, you, the, and, and the video quality the problem is video is so good, you know, that not everyone is going to be able to discern the improvement in video quality. All of us nerds can, of course. But the, the difference that anybody can uh, ascertain with the, with the Kaleidoscape is the audio quality. It's dramatically different. 
um, then, uh, you know, because the, for some reason, the, all the streamers give a lot of bandwidth to video and none to audio. And I don't know why, but the audio really suffers in a streaming environment. So you, yeah, everyone should have a Clyde. Any high performance theater should have a Clyde escape. And uh, are you uh, typically getting uh, outside um, calibration for your theaters as well? Or do you do that in-house these days? Fortunately, we've got some resources here in Southern California that are awesome. So we, we hire that out. We, we can't do it as good as them. Um, okay. It doesn't make sense for us. Yeah. And are, are you seeing uh, beyond the theater itself? And I, I heard that theaters did kind of see a resurgence, dedicated theaters in, in a lot of markets just because of everyone being at home and yeah. uh, really wanting that entertainment space. Um, I, I mentioned your health and wellness project getting an award. So clearly you're doing a lot of other things in the home and some of those trends, whether maybe be uh, lighting or uh, ventilation or whatever it may might be to, to qualify as health and wellness. What was in that particular project, if I might ask, just to know how far you've gone into that space? So that was a super interesting project. We have a you know, a developer we work with and their goal was to create the first uh, net zero carbon home in California. So they were paying attention to every material and every system they put in the house and energy consumption and, you know, gases and, you know, anything that you would be concerned about in terms of creating the the best one sustainable home, even though it's a large luxury home, but also the healthiest home as well. So, um, you know, we were challenged to, to, to think about our projects differently. We don't really think about energy consumption or you know, we don't really think much about our materials. Now, every once in a while, like, well, you know, there's, there's some manufacturer offers something that we talk about for three minutes after we learn about it, then we forget about it. But, you know, stuff like Lutrons, you know, the materials that are eco-friendly. Yeah, I knew about them. Until I was asked about them, I was like, oh, now i got to take this seriously for this project. We've got to present these to the client and think about this and talk about these things. And um, So, you know, there's just different things we did on that project where, you know, when a, when a window is open, the HVAC doesn't turn on, or all the lights are in eco mode where they're not going to full brightness, or if there's a lot of ambient sunlight, those are those are all dialed down when you hit that on button. So there's a lot, you know, all digital amplification to, to power the speakers throughout the house, uh, minimal amount of wire, just the you know we didn't want to use a lot of materials that weren't didn't actually need, so. We just, you know, just a project that we thought about differently. And we don't always get those requests. It's kind of unusual. Um, we're hoping we get more of it. We like to be challenged. It's kind of fun to do things that are, you know, not the sort of standard, you know, technolo- home technology system. Um, but, uh, you know, in, uh, would, would that be a trend? I'm not sure if it's a trend. I don't know that we're getting that much demand for it. Um, right. But, you know, Certainly in Southern California, the big demand for outdoor living spaces, ramped up home theaters because people are, you know, realizing, ah, I might be stuck at home for the next two months. I might as well, you know, make it great or I got to work from home. So let's make my space better. I think I think what happened in Southern California is typical. What happened all over the country during the pandemic is you got a guy who's got some resources and means and he's sitting in his house and he's looking at all the deferred maintenance and things he didn't do and ways he could make his house cooler and he's not spending money on vacation. So he's like, ah, 
let me put some money into my house. It's just what happened. I, I went through that. Maybe you went through that. I think we all did. Um, mm -hmm. So, but it doesn't look like that is stopping. People are really investing in their homes. Um, and it's a, it's, 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 I think it's a trend we're going to, a wave we're going to ride for probably the next couple of years. It'd be great for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. you're being in the California market and Southern California is maybe different than Northern California, but generally California is kind of the leading edge of environmentalism or uh, regulation and different things like that. Is there anything that a, a CI dealer has to deal with in California that with your understanding on being on the ASEAN board and talking to owners around the country in all different markets, um, anything that's unique to California for you? Do you have to contend with as a business from owner a, from a regulation standpoint um installing lighting is a little more difficult in terms of fixture selection because we have title 24 which you don't have in other states we also have other requirements for fixtures so um that that definitely is more difficult to do in california because california is on that forefront of energy conservation um outside of that nothing has trickled down to the other things we do IT automation security camp none, none of that but the lighting control definitely there, there's just some products that my peers in Wisconsin or Iowa can sell that I can't right you know, I, have, mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a few more hoops to jump through but that you know all know that's a good thing yeah and uh, I would just say as a wrap-up I'm curious what you think um, you said that obviously the next couple of years hopefully the trend will continue with folks spending money on their homes and that's a good thing for the custom integration industry but uh, the long-term uh, future of the industry, from your wisdom of having gone through some some things uh, with the merger, the just owning a company as long as you have, um, we see demographic shifts of client base and who wants to watch TV and who doesn't. And things change, you know, as folks yeah. get older and demographics yeah. change. What about um, the future of our industry? How do you how how bullish are you on the um, the longevity of what 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 this is that you do for a living well well i'm an optimist so you know take that before i tell you anything i'm an optimist so but how the pessimists look at our industry is hey technology is keeps on getting cheaper and it keeps on getting better so it keeps making the ci specialist less valuable that's your pessimistic view right uh, my optimistic view is, yeah, it keeps on getting cheaper. It keeps on getting better, but the market is mature, right? The market understands what we do now, where they didn't 15 years ago. Their acceptance of what we do is off the charts compared to, you know, 15 years ago. We are becoming more important to the household, not less important to the household. And, you know, to, to think about a house without technology is, is insanity at this point, right? It's, it's the thing that our clients touch more than anything else. And I think it was Verizon that did a survey of, you know, what, what services are you willing, what services in your house are the most important, plumbing, electrical, lighting, et cetera. And, uh, you know, internet was by far the most important thing. Um, you know, and, and I think if I go to my clients and say, if you had to be without something for, an evening, what would it be? Would it be your plumbing, your electricity, or your internet? And and my clients resoundingly would say, I will pee in my backyard and I will <laughs> be in the dark as long as I can be online, you know? So right. so I think what we do is vital. It's only gonna become more vital. Technology is only gonna be integrated into more stuff. 
yeah, maybe we won't be able to sell seventy or eighty thousand dollar projectors or four hundred thousand dollar video walls because that'll be cheaper. But you know, we're not going away. We're not going away. Um, and there might be even a time where your technology guy is really the GC of your house because that is driving the rest of the house. So uh, I'm bullish, you know. And in my little market, you know, which is the the top of the the top in terms of income like for good or for bad that those p- people aren't going away there's right. more billionaires being created all the time so my my market of uber wealthy people continues to grow and grow and my business i don't need to service hundreds of thousands of people you know i need dozens so yeah. you know I, i'm i'm bullish in terms of our market our our little market well, Eric, I, I think we'll end on that note. It's a good positive uh, idea and image for the future. Hopefully that is what what it is, how it works out for everybody. And I, I think you're onto something there as well. Um, so thanks again for taking the time out today. I'm happy to do it. We'll talk soon. Eric Tease is uh, the, uh, well, let, let's wait real quick. Let's talk about your title. <laughs> Okay. What do you call yourself at, at uh, your company? On, on LinkedIn, I call myself an autocrat. That's know? what it was. Yes. Yeah. And okay. and 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 the, the title came from a client. Um, you know, saw me on a job site, and I was running around shouting out orders to people. And he goes, oh, "Well, what are you? What's your role? Are you the autocrat?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'll take that." It's kind of funny. So, anyway, yeah. Well, I don't take title too seriously, as you can tell. Yes, I, clearly. <laughs> Eric Tease is the uh, autocrat at DSI Luxury Technology in Lake Balboa, California. You can learn more about his company at dsilt.com. And uh, that wraps up today's show. If you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the weekly podcast on your preferred platform and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at the magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the bi-monthly print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Friday email newsletters. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell. Residential, residential tech talks, lighting specialist to our residential tech